1: Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Diva podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel, and this week we're talking about some new information on the pesticide residue in our foods. The FDA recently released its annual pesticide residue report, and I know that pesticides are one of the things that people really worry about. In fact, it often turns up at the top of the list of things that people are worried about in terms of their food and safety. So I thought we should take a look at this latest study and see what this report has to say. But here to help us make sense of this very technical and complex data is Dr. Carl Winter of the UC Davis, University of California at Davis. Dr. Winter has spent his entire career researching the detection of pesticides and naturally occurring toxins in foods and how to assess their risks. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to to help us sort through this. Now, Dr. Winter, I've cited your research before on the podcast, and it is such a pleasure to have you here on the show.
0: Uh, It's really my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Monica.
1: So as part of their ongoing pesticide monitoring program, the FDA tested 7,000 foods in the year 2016, we're just getting these results now, for residues of over 700 different pesticides and some selected industrial compounds. Over half of all the samples that they analyzed contained no pesticide chemical residues at all. And 94% of the samples were compliant with federal standards. So That seems like a pretty good report card to me. Is this better, worse, or more or less the same as we've seen in previous years? Are we trending in one direction or the other?
0: I think these findings are pretty similar to what we've seen for the past several decades. Generally, when FDA does this analysis, they find the majority of samples don't have detectable residues and the violation rates are are pretty low. So this is another confirmation of what they've been showing for, for the past few decades.
1: Well, that sounds like good news, but it it still does mean that 6% of the samples that they tested were not compliant. Does that mean that they were unsafe to eat?
0: This is something that I think certainly gives consumers a lot of pause. If they see that 6% of the samples are not compliant or violative, uh, suddenly that screams, wow, a lot of the food supply has violations in pesticide residues. What do we need to do to protect our families? Um, The bottom line on this, though, is that violations are not related to health. The fact that something is violative does not imply that it is an unsafe residue. I'd say 99.99% of the violative residues really have nothing to do with safety. They do indicate that... Something was detected that they didn't expect to find, or in very rare cases, the applications weren't made according to the appropriate uh, practices. But in terms of consumer exposure, just because you have violations doesn't mean that there's going to be any food safety consequences as a result of that.
1: Um, I was also interested to to learn that this is not just random sampling program where they go into grocery stores and just pick stuff at random. They're actually purposely testing the foods that they think are most likely to be in violation. And that kind of puts it in a whole different light as well.
0: Right. You could you could think of this as, as sort of a the traffic cop hiding. Uh, behind uh, some bushes or something trying to catch people speeding. You know the best places to hide, you know where people uh, might be speeding. As as a result of this, for example, we see that more than or about two-thirds of the samples taken are not domestic samples, but imported samples because they tend to have higher vi- violation rates. So FDA is trying to maximize its use, its uh, budget to try to um, find the best chances of catching violators, but they're not really looking at random sampling. They're not, their results are not giving what is the actual presence of pesticide residues and violations in foods, for from, from my opinion.
1: Okay. So, so from what you're saying, it means that these, even these 6% of foods that were found to be in violation, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're unsafe to consume or that they're exposing us to unsafe levels of chemicals. It's more just a sign that these chemicals are not being used the way they're supposed to be or intended to be used.
0: Right. Now, the vast majority of the violative residues show up when you find residues of a pesticide that are allowed to be used, but they're showing up on crops that don't have an allowable level or a tolerance established on those particular crops. So these might result from uh, uptake from contaminated soil, from spray drift from an adjacent field. Maybe there's co-mingling as you're taking things from the field to the packing house, and they're, they're being co-mingled with, with other uh, fruits and vegetables. So if you used, um, for example, if you had uh, a broccoli field and, and a lettuce field, and something was registered for use on broccoli but not on lettuce, and a tiny amount of it drifted over to the lettuce... Um, you might find that you might have a detectable le- uh, residue on the lettuce, and that would be a violation. But oh. in fact, it might be far lower than what's allowed on on the broccoli. I so see. it does, uh, and and the vast majority of, of uh, cases are for for violations are are simply that. Very rarely do we have violations in which the residue found on the particular commodity is in excess of what has been established as the tolerance. So that indicates in those situations that maybe the product wasn't applied properly, maybe uh, too much of it was used, uh, you know, it wasn't handled properly. But that is a very rare case. And even in most all of those cases, the residues over the tolerance level are not sufficient to cause uh, human harm. For consumers.
1: So Dr. Winter, this year the FDA also used some new methods to test foods specifically for glyphosate, which most consumers know as Roundup. And this was really in response to public concerns about the presence of this particular chemical in our food supply. So what did they find?
0: Well, they found what you might expect. They were able to detect residues, uh, particularly in, in crops in which glyphosate had, had been used, such as, as corn and soybeans. But uh, I, I believe in, in their cases, they found that there was complete compliance. None of the residues were detected at levels in excess of the tolerance uh, I think it's great to have this data. There's always a lot of speculation and concern, uh, most recently about glyphosate, and it's always good to collect data. This can help us further understand what levels of exposure we might be having to glyphosate, which from from my research tend to be extremely low and far below those levels of toxicological concern.
1: Well, yeah, I was just going to ask. So, you know, 100% of the samples seem to be in compliance, but, you know, can we be really confident that the current regulations are strict enough to prevent unsafe exposure to this compound? I think that's what some people are worried about that. Yeah, there it's within the standards, but maybe the standards aren't, uh, tight enough. What's your thought on that?
0: Well, we have a a sort of a counterintuitive system for establishing the the actual standards of the tolerance before any tolerance is established. All chemicals have to go through an evaluation, uh, on which their exposures on all the commodities on which they can be used uh, are assessed. And this is pretty strict criteria there. They have to look at, um, you know, potential risks of infants and children, exposures from from the pesticide uh, to the pesticide from water and in the residential arena. Uh, Basically, the pesticide has to be determined to show a reasonable certainty of no harm based on some very stringent criteria Before it can even be registered for use on the various commodities. So that's a, that's a high bar that already has to be passed. So anything that has tolerances has already cleared that high bar. So, and, and those determinations of the reasonable certainty of no harm. Allow us to make some pretty broad assumptions that humans are much more sensitive to the chemicals than the animal study animal species we've tested them in, and that individual members of the population may be much more sensitive than the average human all of those are taken into account when we look at what is what is a reasonable certainty of no harm so anytime you have a tolerance established, that's a pretty good indicator that the typical exposure to that pesticide is going to be far below the levels of concern.
1: I see. Well, you know, with a little bit more context on how these foods are being selected for sampling and what the standards for compliance are, it seems to me that the results of this pesticide monitoring program have only sort of limited relevance for consumers in terms of what our exposure to the pesticides might be.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. They're basically enforcing the the standards, and that's their job. They're, they're the traffic cop. They're not determining whether the levels are safe or not. Um, there's very different criteria that you use, and sometimes you can take the residue findings and use that. But the important thing there to get out of that is the actual amount of pesticide, not its presence or absence, or uh, whether it's above or below the tolerance level, or whether it's violative, those really tell you nothing in terms of uh, exposure assessment. The important thing is how much are we exposed to these pesticides? Mm-hmm. And for most pesticides that are detected in this program and other programs, our typical exposures on a day-to-day basis are often one million times lower than the amount that we feed to laboratory animals on a daily basis throughout their entire lifetime that show no effects in those laboratory species. Hmm. It's not that we can absolutely prove that these are are safe for humans, but there is certainly a, a very large buffer. So, for example, if you prepared all the food for all the residents of the city of San Francisco, which has approximately 1 million people, in population. You prepared all the food for all the residents of the city of San Francisco for one day. but instead of distributing these to all of the residents of San Francisco, you find one person and you say, all right, eat all of this food. <laughs> and then you do that the next day and the next day for 70 years, that person's exposure to the pesticides in the diet is still not going to be at a level when given to laboratory animals over their lifetimes that shows any noticeable effects. So we have a very large cushion between exposure and health effects.
1: Well, thank you. And, you know, in that scenario, I would think that pesticide residue would be the least of that person's problems.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I believe so, right?
1: Well, but in addition to this pesticide monitoring program, the FDA also does something called a total diet study. And this was much more interesting to me. Foods are selected to represent a typical diet and then they're prepared the way they would be typically prepared. So they may wash them, they may peel them, things that are cooked get cooked, they might even, you know, cook them into a frozen pizza or some other sort of convenience food the way we might be likely to eat them, and then they analyze that. And the idea is to get an idea of how much total chemical residue any given consumer is likely to be exposed to from their typical diet. This sounds much closer to what we would be interested in. So this total dietary study included a thousand different foods and altogether, they found residues of 155 different pesticides in that group of foods and most frequently at very, very low trace levels. Of all of the residues in, in the total diet study foods, 87% of them were at levels below 0.01 parts per million. So, if my math is right, a hundredth of a part per million is one part per 100 million, right? So these are very, very small amounts. But you know, I've heard people argue that even very small amounts of 155 different things might add up to an unsafe toxic burden that we did. We might not see if we were just looking at each of them individually. Is that, is that a reasonable concern? Well, I, we have
0: to get back to the levels first. Uh, the first principle of toxicology is the dose makes the poison. It's the amount of a chemical, not its presence or ab- absence, that determines the potential for harm. And it is possible that chemical A, when combined with chemical B, could have a very different effect than just chemical A or chemical B. But we also know that there has to be some sort of biological mechanism for this this to occur. And generally, all of these biological effects occur based upon what we call a toxicity threshold. So for the vast majority of toxicological effects it is assumed that nothing will occur until your exposure to a particular chemical is at a level high enough to uh, cause a particular effect. And that once you have that particular effect, that could then uh, work its way back and affect the toxicity of another material. So for example, we have chemicals that the body is really good at detoxifying at low levels. So at low levels of exposure, we're able to pretty much eliminate the chemical before it can form something that might be a little bit more toxic. There are cases where other impurities, in many cases, in pesticide mixtures might actually affect the enzyme that uh, allows us to detoxify that particular pesticide, Mm -hmm. and which, when that happens, if the levels are sufficient to impede that biochemical uh, reaction, then you could have a buildup of of more toxic forms, but that's also a dose-related thing. You were talking earlier about you know, things being present at one one-hundredth of a part per million. In those levels of concentration in the foods, you're just not seeing any of these toxicological effects so it's still a dose related phenomenon i think it's very important to you know to think about that if we had sufficient exposure to certain types of chemicals where biological effects would be expected to occur then those could quite likely affect the toxicity of of other chemicals in the mixture but you still have to have a sufficient level of exposure and from from my understanding of what we've been seeing from data coming from Studies such as the Total Diet Study that you just cited, our exposures are so low that these interactive effects among chemicals are extremely unlikely.
1: You know, I have to tell you, I think a lot of people listening are going to be very surprised to hear you say that. So, if the, because we hear so much about pesticides and it does seem to be like such a clear and present danger, so it's um, it's interesting to hear their perspective of somebody who has literally spent his entire life measuring these residues and evaluating their potential harm, but. If the levels of pesticide residues that we are exposed to are safe, then does taking steps to reduce our exposure to these compounds have any measurable benefit?
0: Based on the levels that we traditionally see in our foods, I don't think that, you know, going out of your way to reduce your exposure is really going to have a a benefit. Uh, You know, half of negligible is still negligible. (laughs) Uh, Now, with that said, you know, a lot of consumers, in fact, a friend that that I met with yesterday, in fact, uh, was asking me about some of these things. and, And she asked me, well, you know, should I go ahead and wash my produce? to remove pesticides and in some cases that can reduce the levels of pesticides. It depends on the pesticide, it depends on the type of food and the the surface area of the food. But the more important thing that you're doing from a health standpoint is you're reducing the potential for microbiological hazards, bacteria and viruses that could also be on the food. Mm. We've been talking today about these tiny theoretical risks from pesticide residues in foods. But on the other side of the coin, we have 48 million cases of foodborne illness that are estimated by the CDC to occur in the United States every year, 48 million cases. That's like one out of six or seven mm-hmm. people in this country in an annual, uh, in a year, will get foodborne illness. And we have you know, hundreds of thousands of cases of hospitalization, several thousand deaths Every year, so washing your produce is a great way to reduce your susceptibility to that. And if it makes you feel better that you might be re- reducing some of the uh, pesticides, that's great too.
1: Yeah. Well, I think some people might ask, you know, if this stuff is toxic at any dose, why why even take that risk? I mean, what do we gain from using these chemicals in agriculture? Or maybe the more important question is, what would we lose? If we decided we didn't want to use any pesticides anymore in our agriculture?
0: Those are great questions. I think the you know the short answer is they do allow us to produce more food on the same amounts of, of acreage. We certainly have a challenge and we'll continue to have a challenge as the population grows to upwards of 10 billion people by 2050, to make sure that we feed people. And agricultural chemicals, pesticides, such as insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, can uh, allow us to produce more food. And as a result, for consumers, the more food that's produced, the cheaper it is, the more available, the more abundant. Uh, The most important thing we can do from from a health standpoint is eat lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. We have very strong epidemiological evidence to demonstrate that a diet rich in these uh, foods can decrease your risk of heart disease, can decrease your risk of, of certain types of cancers. So the most important thing we can do is eat fruits and vegetables. Um, For me, you know, frankly, I don't care if you're eating organic or you're eating conventional. I want you to be eating fruits and vegetables. My concern is that people so concerned about pesticide residues might decrease their consumption of fruits and vegetables because of their concerns. So they might be doing the wrong thing even if they feel that this is, is protecting themselves. So I think we need to keep that in, in perspective as well. Also, just because a pesticide is allowed to be used on a particular commodity doesn't mean the grower is going to use that. These uh, chemicals cost a lot of money. There's all kinds of, of paperwork involved. There are concerns about uh, worker exposure and, and other, other regulations. I think most growers are not going to use them unless they have a real problem and uh, the pesticide provides the, the proper solution to that.
1: Well, I couldn't agree with you more that the benefits of eating more fruits and vegetables far, far outweigh any potential risks that might come along with uh, pesticide exposure, but you've certainly brought uh, the weight of of a lot of expertise to my to my argument. So thanks for backing me up on that. And thank you so much for helping us make sense of this very complicated data set, giving us so much insight into what goes into these numbers and, and helping us to understand what this report really has to say about our food supply and our exposure to pesticides. Thanks, Dr. Winter.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Show notes for today's interview with Dr. Winter are on our website at nutritiondiva.quickanddirtytips.com, and I've also included a link to the report that we've been discussing and some of the other research that we mentioned. If you have questions or comments, you are always welcome to post them there or on the Nutrition Diva Facebook page.